Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Vikingology. The art and science of the Viking Age. I'm Thing One, CJ Adrian. And I'm Thing Two, Terry Barnes. So for this episode, Terry, I have exciting news. Okay. It's really cool. Is it? Did you know that archaeologists may have, of course, we can't be certain of this, may have uncovered the grave of the famous Viking warrior, Egil Skallagrimsson. Uh, yeah, I did know that. Do you want to know how I know that? How do you know that, Terry? Because it's my friend David who actually discovered the grave. Pretty cool. And is that our guest on the show today? Oh, yeah, we have Dr. David Zori from Baylor University who is going to talk to us about that, finding that in Iceland. And so for everybody who's tuning in now, uh, I do want to put out there that originally we weren't going to talk to him about that. It's just something that came about organically in our conversation with him. So we are going to split our conversation with David Zori into two separate podcast episodes. The first is going to be about the supposed Egil Skallagrimson grave. And then the next one is going to be the planned, the one we actually plan to talk about, which is the role of chieftains in Viking Age society. Yes, yes, because, well, it's all interrelated. Uh, Ail's grave was found at a chieftain's hall uh, and a farm there where um, David worked for many years in Iceland. And, you know, the whole study of chieftain level societies is a big part of his work. And so understanding power in the Viking Age, uh, particularly in Iceland, but also how power was wielded and how people stayed in power through things like feasting. That's, um, you know, a big part of the conversation that we'll have with him as well. Awesome. Let's dive in. Great. All right. Here we are, and today we have the great pleasure to speak with someone I'm happy to call a friend, and that is Dr. David Zori from Baylor University. Welcome. Thank you, Terry. Yeah. So um, David is a historian like me, but he also is a historian who likes to dig in the dirt. So he is an archaeologist as well. And you have your foot in a couple of two different kind of interesting camps. One is the Viking Age, which you've studied for a long time, and that's what your PhD is about and so forth. But then you have also been more recently active in medieval Italy, dig yes. digging for medieval Italy. So we can talk a little bit about that. But of course, I mean, we're Vikingology, so we're going to go for your Viking side today. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, so we'll talk a little bit about um, the main project that you are the director for, the field director for in Iceland, um, and we can show a couple of images, um, and also, you know, your focus on politics and chiefdom level societies, so that's what we, we were kind of interested in today, to just sort of get some ideas about what it means to be a chieftain in the Viking Age, um, but before that, we have to determine what kind of Viking you are. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready. All right. So I have a little eight, eight, eight item quiz. Two things, and I will um, give you a choice, and you just tell me which one you prefer. Okay. Okay. All right. Ready? I am. Mead or ale? Ooh, ale. Thor or Odin? Oh, Thor, absolutely. Definitely. Iron or silver? Silver. Winter or summer? Come on, I'm half Italian. I gotta go summer. <laughs> what about the Danish half? <laughs> <laughs> 
we'll edit that for your mom. Uh, <laughs> silk or wool? Silk or wool? Mm -hmm. uh, silk. Beef or skier? Beef. A troll or an elf? <laughs> that's that's the toughest way i'm stumped on this one they're, they're both horrible i'm gonna go with uh troll all right last one a sword or a rock <laughs> uh i you know that's really okay sword <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean really <laughs> a rock what do you do with a rock <laughs> hey the rock was the most Formidable weapon of the Viking Age, didn't you know? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, this is a little bit of a mixed bag, but I think, uh, you know, with the ale and the Thor, you're kind of over there in the, in the, the like with me, with the everyday farmer type Viking. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. then you went, oh. then, you, then you went all fancy with the Odin and the silver. You know, uh -huh. you prefer the lazy life in the summer. Um, you like the silk. You know, silk. The silk and the beef, uh, yeah. the elf. I mean, uh -huh. and, and then the sword. I guess, actually, for what we're going to be talking about today, you would make a perfect chieftain. Well, thank you. And uh, Vodmal underwear, by the way, that's raw wool underwear is not the way to go. Silk, <laughs> is, silk is definitely what you want. <laughs> Do we know if the Vikings wore underwear? <laughs> yeah, we have undergarments from the Viking Age, absolutely. You have garments. How do you know they were undergarments? <laughs> well, uh, some of them look like underwear. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, first things first. Yeah, so let's situate this. I mean, so the most um, extensive period of time that you've spent uh, doing excavations for the Viking Age have been in Iceland. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And, but you've been in other places as well. I know you were in Newfoundland. Uh, I've been in Newfoundland. I've dug in, in Ireland. I've done work in Denmark. Uh, but most of my excavations have been in, in Iceland, in south, okay. southwest Iceland and on the northern fjords of Iceland. Okay. So I'm going to share screen and we can give the audience a little bit of um, information here about your project in Iceland that you are the field director for. And that's been for a long time, right? Like 2006? That's that's right. Even before that, um, it was it's a project that the overall director I should mention is Jesse Bayer, whose name you see there at the top, and mm -hmm. he was my advisor when I came as a graduate student to UCLA in 2002. And so the project dates back to the year before then, where they started an excavation. So I joined as a graduate student and then uh, became the field director. And, and Jesse's partner then in the, in the excavation of this and I ended up writing my dissertation on this this beautiful valley which you see there in the picture in the, the top left it's a view from the moss fell mountain the um, fell just means mountain and moss is moss and it uh, overlooks what was the richest farm in the Viking Age and uh, the the opening of the valley to the sea you see over there is the fjord, uh, Leirvogur it's called, and then in the distance that city that you see there is uh, Reykjavik. Okay, and then we, so this is the obviously the homepage, and we will put link 
uh, to this in our description so people can check it out. Um, but if you want to see the valley, so here's my own picture. I actually, uh -huh. I live in these trees right here when I'm there. I'll actually be there in a month. I'm I'm looking so much forward to it. But the farm that you're just referring to is is this one right here, right where you worked the most. Yeah, that, that's right. And probably already you can see some kind of interesting looking bumps in the ground, and that's actually part of what right. drew us there to begin with. Where your arrow is, I think your viewer can yeah. see where the blue arrow is. Yep. That hill is called Hultuhut, uh, which means hill of the hidden people or the elves. Okay, so I picked troll rather than elf in the initial survey because I don't see how this happened. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I was very close to these elves for for a while, and there's places in the landscape in Iceland uh, that have these names that retain evidence of previous beliefs pre-christian beliefs and that's probably one of them so we were very interested um, in that micro place name next to behind that hill there was another little bump in the ground called the kirkju hook which means a church hill a church mound and it really was just a bump in the ground and the the origin of the project has to do with a combination of, of looking at the landscape and reading the Icelandic sagas. In this case, a saga called Ail Saga. It's in the last part of it. It talks about heroes, including Ail Skallagrimsson, who was a great warrior poet, who at the end of his life lived at this farm. And when he died at the farm, uh, he was buried Kind of down the valley, closer to where you were pointing to where you you lived, down a place called Tjalfanes. Yeah, that's right, Tjalfanes. Yeah. So Tentingness, in a pagan mound. And uh, after, so this was you know 20 years or so before conversion to Christianity. But when Iceland becomes Christian, they the people that lived there, including his his niece and a chieftain called Grimur Sverkingsson, they I built a church because they were early converters to the new faith. They built a church on this property. And then they went down and grabbed their venerable ancestor, Aiden Scott Grimson, from the tenting nest mound down by the by the river and moved him up to the church in a sort of process that now we call retroactive Christianization. That is just retroactively you Christianize somebody who has died before Christianity arrived. And the saga says that he was then buried underneath the altar of the church at Reesburg. But that's not all for his posthumous sort of movements around the landscape, because when the chieftains, a century or so later, moved their primary farm about 100 meters up the valley, they take down the church at Reesburg, move it to the new farm, which is called Mosfet, and they build another church there. And they move Ail Scotla Grimson with them. They want to move again the bones of their venerable ancestor with them to where they're living now. And when they dig up his grave, uh, an Icelandic priest, which um, this story will give you an idea of what Icelandic priests were like around 1100 AD, he digs up the skull of, of Ail Scotla Grimson and looks at it, and it's it's got sort of waves on it, and it looks much bigger than any other men. And you can see, this August says, that this was no weakling we were dealing with here. So to test out how 
strong and powerful. And it was uh, the priest puts the skull on the church wall and takes the back of his axe, which he happens to be carrying an axe because that's apparently what a uh, priest is carrying around in around 1100 in Iceland and turns it around and hits the skull with the back of his axe. Saga says it doesn't break even at that, it just whitens slightly. And that's to show how great of a warrior and how strong Aeol's Catholic Mercy was. Um, all that to say that those passages, um, which Jesse Bayek's written an article about what he may have had Paget's disease. Maybe this, this is an actually a memory of A.L. Scoutlish Grimson suffering from, from some, some disease that we now know the symptoms of. So that, that's another side of the story. But the archaeological side of the story is this is a very clear description of how the ritual landscape was used, how there's a pagan burial down by the river, how there's an early church there, how there was a chieftain's farm at Reesbrook. So the idea with this project was let's go kind of test the, the saga in a way and, and see what's there. So in the first interviews with the, the local farmer, Olava, uh, he was the one that told us about these place names. So he was the one that said this little bump in the ground is called Kirkjuhar. So we were thinking, well, that's a pretty good place to start. Um, it's circled there, Kirkjuhar. Yeah. Pretty good place to start for for an excavation, and um, you know after a couple of years there, so I came in two thousand two, when one skeleton had already been found, and over the course of the next couple of years, we revealed a conversion period church from right around the year thousand, which is precisely when the the saga says the church is is built there. Underneath the, the place where the altar would have stood, the, the church was a very simple structure. It was um, what they call a nave and chancel type yeah. building. Yeah. yeah, there you go, nave and chancel. So uh, you see the, the nave is the larger rectangle to the west, and the, the door would have been in the western wall. And you enter into the church, it's very small. You know, that, that nave part is maybe you know four by, by three meters. Um, and then the, the chancel area is about two by two meters. Uh, and then if you look at that map, you'll notice that one of those graves goes underneath the chancel there. Okay. And we found that grave in 2005. And of course, local interest in, in this work then kind of exploded because that's a grave underneath the altar. Not only is a grave underneath the altar, it's an empty grave underneath the altar. Now, if you were a true believer in the sagas, what would you have had to find? You would have had to find exactly that, an empty grave underneath the chancel, the grave of Ail Scotland Grimson, potentially. Not only that, but the grave wasn't just empty, because sometimes you have bad local preservation conditions. Some of the graves down there at the bottom may have suffered from that. But what we could see in coming down onto this grave was not only was it empty, but it was actually emptied. Mm. Uh, the, there was a floor layer in this church made up of gravel, and especially in the in the chancel, that gravel was built up. And right above where that grave is, there was a hole dug through that gravel after the foundations and wood of the chancel had been removed. We could tell that because then the, the gravel spray from the hole that was dug there was deposited over the foundations 
of the chancel wall. And so there's a hole going down into the grave. So the archaeology at this point seemed to line up really well with the story from the saga that I just recounted earlier of Ailes Gottlieb having been buried underneath the altar here and then being moved when they moved their, their farmstead. So we have to be careful though in archaeology. Can we say for sure that this is the grave of Ailes Scotland Grimson? Some might say yes, but it, we can't really be 100% sure. So we published an article called Ailes Grave Question Mark because in archaeology you can't be sure, unless we found a plaque that says, you know, here's the grave of Ailes Scotland We don't know. But what we can say absolutely for sure is that the social practices evident in the archaeology are aligned one to one with the text. Right, venerable ancestors being moved, people being moved from, from one farmstead to the other. The location here of a very early church associated with a very powerful chieftaincy, which is which you can see by the size of the, the longhouse, which is that structure that's above the church. There. That's a longhouse and one of the biggest uh, longhouses in, in from Viking Age, Iceland. That's really a show of the, the power and authority of these chiefs of the Mosfell Valley, which we call Mosfellingar, the people of Mosfell. So this is something that I think we've mentioned maybe in one of our other episodes before, and some of the audience will know this, but for others who don't, I mean, you, what you're also what you're talking about here is, you know, with the issue with the saga, and then what you're finding in the archaeology is, um, I don't know what, like a fairly long-standing sort of debate, right, in the scholarly community about whether or not the Icelandic sagas can be used as actual history and documentation of actual history, or whether or not they're just these sort of literary creations that are just simply stories that really don't have any correlation to anything, um, and that you all are finding, you know, the reality as usual, right, is somewhere in the middle, <laughs> Um, but that there is something there that's telling us, uh, you know, we may not exactly know, like you said, that it's ale, but we we see cultural traditions and things that are described in the sagas that actually are being borne out by what you're finding in the in the material culture here, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly the point. And, um, you know, like you point out, the story is always more interesting when, when the two... You know, I, sometimes I call the text and the archaeology different data sets. When the data sets, they not only just confirm or contradict each other, but complement each other to add something to each other, make the story more interesting. And that's what I really love about uh, archaeology of the Viking Age, because we're constantly discovering something new and adding a bit to to the story. We're not digging holes just to show, you know, saga is correct. Although it is satisfying, right, to show that that a story from the saga. Uh, is borne out at least in general terms in the in the archaeological uh, record. So what what would you need to find if if it's even possible at all to have something uh, to prove that it was Egloskallagrimson, or is that just are we are we just going to be putting the chicken chicken or the egg kind of in perpetuity? Like, well, first of all, was Egil even real, or is he an amalgamation <laughs> yeah. of several different characters from the? And then just because we found this one piece of evidence, you know, like, but it, yeah. like, would there be would there be something like if you had to name one thing that would be like, okay, this gives us ninety percent, you know, confidence? It's like, would it be the other grave that he got moved to? Like, yeah. if it matched, I guess that's right. So let's say, you know, it'd have to be, I guess, compounding correlations between the text and the archaeology that start to mount to the point where it's really 
you really have to jump through a lot of hoops to have any other explanation. So let's say, for instance, uh, Jesse Bach's theory about Paget's disease. Let's take that. Now that's a theory built on on evidence from the saga. It doesn't doesn't have anything to do with the archaeology. Now, let's say we went to the other church, which is still possible to do. Go to the other church, do an excavation there, come up with the church that dates to around 1100. Find a reburial. So by that point, ale shouldn't have been a body anymore, right? It should just be bones. So maybe, and this we found quite frequently, I find this both in Italy and in, in, in Iceland, that is sort of parcels of bones that are, are tucked into to different niches or places. Uh, special venerable ancestors will be tucked in close to, to the altar or close to the chancel. So let's say we find a, a group of bones tucked in close to the altar at the other church, and then we do some genetic study and find out that this guy had Paget's disease. Mm -hmm. All right, then I would say, okay, now, now you, I mean, I think anybody at that point, then the game would be done. And we would have, I think, enough definitive proof, short of, like I was joking earlier, short of, you know, a runestone plaque or something like that in the bottom right. that says the grave of Ailes Scaligrimson, which is also buried on that group, right? Well, then and we, even if you found that extra evidence, like the pile of bones next to the altar with the genetic studies and everything, going back to this this one site that we just looked at, there would still be some measure of a doubt because it's like, was Egil Scaligrimson the only one who got exhumed and the reburied and so forth so could so so they there would always just there's and that's something that uh terry you and i like to talk about a lot is just there's so so much uncertainty with studying the viking age you know as the maybes yeah. ifs perhaps is and we can never be all that sure i think you're right about that and actually the the church there that we looked at it has two other reburials so if you look uh just to the north and south of the the chancel it's hard to see uh, yeah right right yeah right where you were before there's actually a little close to the chancel there is a reburial tucked in to that close to that chancel and on the other side right there so there's two burials there one is actually on top of the foundation and post dates the church but then there's a bundle of bones down there um, that's grade four which was also a reburial that is, it was brought in from somewhere else. So both of those two individuals were also brought in from somewhere else, probably from earlier pagan graves, and put in right next to the chancel, again, as close as you can get to the altar without being inside the church. Right, so your point, CJ, there is like, this is the general practice that's going on. Uh, that one in the south is an interesting grave, too, because it, it died from, from, uh, from an infection. And it, uh, the person, it was a male, uh, was buried also with a whalebone amulet that has some indecipherable, indecipherable possible runes carved into, into the plaque. And we know from the sagas and other archaeological finds that sort of curative runic inscriptions are not uncommon. And it's very possible that, uh, that the infection that this person died of, uh, they tried to cure it with a with a runic mm -hmm. message all that to say right. you're you're right there's if there's a if there's some doubters they're going to continue to find reasons of doubt there's actually a whole book out there written about how A.L. scott legrimson's saga is modeled on hagiography that is um, mm. the life of lives of saints mm -hmm. and that his burial underneath the altar is like kind of like an inside joke because he's such a horrible person <laughs> that he wouldn't possibly be buried underneath an altar so it's sort of a big joke that he then becomes buried like a saint 
know, like Saint Ale, right? So like joke. Uh, you know, so anyway, even evidence like that, right? So you can use the archaeological evidence even to, to sort of uh, throw throw doubt on the the connection if that is your that's your belief. So you have to. This is yeah. So does it come down to belief in the end? Is another another good question. Terry and I have talked about this too. In the end, can we ever be sure? And I think that's a good point. CJ is is perhaps we we can't. I know. I do. David, you know, there's a smoking gun with ale. You know it. Somebody finds that <laughs> treasure hoard of silver. Uh huh. <laughs> That's all right. That's I, right. I do. Uh, I do want to commend you on not presuming with that. Uh, you know, person who died of an infection's choice of pronouns would have been, and you were very careful. <laughs> there. I appreciate See? that. See, um, I've learned something. Yes. <laughs> uh, so what, what does it tell us about, I mean, in, in my mind, and I'll just kind of throw this out there and you tell me if I'm, if I'm on the, the right track, but it sounds like just this com compilation of stories about exhuming bodies to be reburied in a chancery and so forth. Is that, it, it, to me, that speaks of a society that is, is a, almost in crisis, right? Kind of an identity crisis, a spiritual crisis of like, because they are, they're Christianizing, but then they're kind of wrestling with it all. I mean, is that, is that consistent with kind of what the leading scholarship on this time period, this place and time period uh, yeah. goes for? It's, I think it's a really fascinating period because of this, this idea that what, what do you do with these periods of ideological transition? Going from a, a pre-Christian worldview, we don't like to call it a religion anymore, so diverse in its set of beliefs, yeah. from that to a, a monotheistic faith with everything that that entails. You get the ritual specialists, you get a shift in language use, uh, definitely a shift in burial practice. How do you deal with that? How do you continue to, to send messages of uh, kinship, of power differential, inheritance, this sort of thing? And that's part of what they're doing in a, in a sense, I think, by bringing in earlier pre-Christian burials into the Christian context. They're making, they're drawing connection generational connections across a religious divide if that makes sense you want your ancestors to join you in that new faith not only that they're making other considerations uh, a lot we talk about these graves that are right around the year of thousands so they're transitioning from pre-christian or pagan religion to christian and many of the monuments and graves are what we would call either hybridized or syncretic they're mixing the uh, symbols so for instance five of those graves in the church there were buried with um when we excavate them we find lines of, of clench bolts or essentially rivets that are the type of rivet that's used to to fasten two overlapping planks together in a viking ship construction it's called clinker construction it uses these these iron clench bolts and we found lines of them over five of the burials uh, in this early Christian cemetery and going, what's going on here? The other people aren't buried like this. They're not the classic hardware for coffins. It's not just coffin hardware. Something's being put on top of them. It's not putting, it's not placing on the bottom. So then we start thinking, this really looks like pieces of a boat. Then people go, oh, is it a broken boat? And you're carrying your dead in in a broken boat. Maybe it's just utilitarian. But they're, they're not under, they're over. So I actually think they're very purposeful, symbolic statements uh, about inclusion of a ship or part of a ship because here in, in the ritual context part equals a whole so you're including part of a ship in the burial 
of, of, of one of your family members or, or family extended family group. And I think what they're doing here is they're using that ship imagery was important for carrying the soul or, or the being in from one from the world of living into the world of the dead in the pre-Christian worldview. That's being included also in the Christian context. So it's kind of hedging your bets a little bit too, you know? Okay, so burial, uh, the, the kind of maritime nautical symbology is important in the pre-Christian world. Let's bring that into, into the Christian world as well. This is an appropriate symbol. And in fact, we can circle back to the the Hutuhot, the, uh, the hill of the elven people. The shape of that hill, if you look at it from the top, is a little bit ship-shaped. Uh, with a P, ship shaped, and it's um, it's got a prow. It looks like a prow that points out to the sea. And when we excavated the tip of that, we could see it was built up on purpose. That is, flagstones or sort of curb stones had been brought up to the the hill, and then gravel had been filled in. We're going, what are they doing here? And then we sort of think maybe they're making, and in, in the tradition of making uh, ship settings in in Scandinavia and burying people in real ships and fake ships. Whether they were stone or wood or anything is, is, is common all the way, it goes all the way back to the Bronze Age, in fact, in Scandinavia. But we started to think maybe they're, they're making a, a ship shape out of this mound. So what's in the middle? We dug in, in the middle and we discovered the first uh, cremation grave in, in Iceland. It is probably the place where the person was cremated, but not where the remains were. We think that we found the remains of the pyre that have then been raked. And, and maybe the bones are placed somewhere else. We don't have enough burned human remains, but enough to know that some person was buried here with, with goods. Here's the interesting part. Uh, well, all that is interesting, but to connect it back to, to the syncretic period of Christianity, the transition from paganism to Christianity, the date on that burial post-dates the first Christian burials in the churchyard. All right, what does that mean? That means they were burying people prior to this big, splashy, pagan burial style. They were burying people in a Christian way, you know, 20 yards away. So we have a mixed faith community here uh, at the very least. So who is this individual that they're expending all these resources on uh, to, to send them off in a classic Viking fashion with a, a, a stone ship pointing out to the sea? I mean, is it like a, a grumpy grandpa, you know, who's like, I want to go out the old way. I kind of like that idea. But it could also just be a backlash. It could be maybe a period uh, where the, the local chieftains decide, you know, this uh, Christianity is not working out for us. Let's go back to the old way. Of course, we know at the end, Christianity certainly wins out. But it's part of the story, right, that archaeology throws us this, this complexity that we don't see in the sources. The sagas generally say, you know, they converted and then you know, they started building churches. They don't talk about generally these back and forth at individual farms. And this archaeology really gives us an insight into the, the people at the time. Well, that brings up a good uh, uh, question in my mind. As far as the, as, as Scandinavia Christianized, how did that affect the warrior class in Viking Age society? I mean, because in Western Europe, in the, in the feudal system, the warrior class was, you know, very well and alive, 
so so much so that the Pope was like, we 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 need to get these guys to stop killing each other. What do we do? Let's send them to the Middle East. Oh, <laughs> great idea. Yeah. So we'll have them kill other people who aren't Christians. But in Scandinavia, I mean, how did uh, was the was the pre-existing warrior society affected, or how did that progress? What do we know? I mean, going back to we don't we may not you may not have an answer to this, but what do we know about the effect of Christianity on that warrior society? Well, it's, it's a very broad question, and probably the answer is we don't really fully know. Clearly, as you point out, Christians are very good at killing each other, too. So, it, you know, it's not like you know, they converted and then they got peaceful. But, you know, that, that explanation of the Vikings, the Viking Age Scandinavians, uh, ceased to be as threatening to, to Christianitas or, or the Christian part of, of what's today Europe. Um, the, the, the theory, the idea that that threat was diminished or disappeared when Christianity arrived goes all the way back into the Viking Age. Adam of, of Bremen, who's, who's a cleric writing for the Archbishop Rick of, of Amber Bremen, writes basically exactly that. He says, you know, here's a race that used to destroy and, and, and harry uh, the Western world in general, he says, Francia and England and all this stuff. But now they are converted and they all sing hallelujah, I'm paraphrasing, and uh, now they are content within their bounds. That's interesting, right? So he's saying now because they're Christian, they no longer have the impetus to, to go abroad and do what they used to do to us. Um, or maybe they That's... were distracted. You know, I had a conversation with a friend where we talked about, uh, for me, one of the most fascinating things of the end of the Viking Age is this idea that Denmark as a kingdom uh, was one of the last to, to join essentially Christendom, but then was the first to jump in as a crusader state. As soon as the Pope called, the first kingdom to jump into the crusader states was Denmark, which is to go from the latest, you know, the 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 most recently converted to like the champion of of the faith is kind yeah. of interesting. And and the feedback my friend gave me was, he said, I think that has more to do, because I for me, I thought maybe it's just because once you Christianize, like now you're like, it's new and it's fresh and it's pretty and it's shiny. And like, you're like, yes, it's my new faith. I'm going to go champion it. And then he, his thought was more of, actually, if you're the latest to be Christianized, that means that you're on the border of, of the Christian world. And so you're in closer proximity to other other non-christian areas and so then you're you you then become the de facto proximity you know fighting non-christian faith so maybe that's you know in my mind like let's say for the warrior class in, in iceland they stopped leaving home because they just started fighting each other and so yeah. then the warrior class went from well the christian warrior class is attacking the i i mean i could yeah. be off but i think that proximity to heathendom may also explain right. you know well yeah and so I think that by that time, by the time of the Crusades, I think that they're thoroughly in Christianity. But I, I think you're you're onto something too, in that perhaps when you're the most recent convert, or let's you know, a recent person to join a club, you also have something to prove mm -hmm. in a way to show your your allegiance there. Now I'm Catholic. But, you know, the scariest Catholics to me are the converts, you know, the ones that became a Catholic, like, why, right? And then they're always like super Catholics, right? So the, the uh, I think some of that might be going on as well. So the crusading energy of the, like if you read in the sagas, 
they just redirect it to the Holy Land. And then later they redirect it to the, the Baltic states. So you can read some of those, those sort of expeditions uh, in parallel to, and it's interesting to look at them in parallel to some of the earlier Viking expeditions that also make it into, into the, into the Mediterranean. So I think that it's a, that's, a, that's a super interesting concept. And clearly they don't stop um, fighting each other or other people. But what does happen, I think this is another key that we need to bring in because it's not that they became Christian and then they, they stopped being a threat to the Western world, just they were redirected. There's also a level of, of social control that the kings wield at the end of the Viking Age that didn't wield at the beginning of the Viking Age. And that's because the states, the state level organization of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden have basically come into place. And in the opening of the Viking Age, it's petty chieftaincies, chieftaincies, chieftains, and confederation with each other that are, are leading uh, the raids or and even the conquest, even something like uh, the Viking Great Army which destroys you know, all but one Anglo-Saxon kingdom, that's led by a, basically a confederation of chieftains that somehow convinced all those people to get on wooden boats in Scandinavia and go attack England. And so that's one of the really fascinating things to me is how did these guys, mostly guys, but also some women, get convinced to get on these boats and go on these really dangerous expeditions? I mean, because there's lots of examples of failed Viking uh, expeditions, um, both in the sagas and in the in the archaeology uh, that that we can we can talk about uh, if if you want. But but there's the change in the power structure and level of social control is also key in shutting down. I think much of that overseas venturing into the Western world. So the resources that the powerful had at the end of the Viking age, the resources that the kings could draw on had much more to do with mobilizing internal taxation and controlling trade and exchange than it did earlier on. Earlier on, the, the wealth was to a large extent driven by what you could plunder and steal and come home with. So all of a sudden, the kings have sort of reoriented the way that they wield power. Right? They've institutionalized something that was extremely personal in the opening to the Viking Age. Um, but I think that, I think it, it, it... I think it deserves its own episode because then how do the Viking chieftains wield power doesn't really apply to that whole section. I think we did 45 minutes on it. So, okay. um, so I think a part one and a part two with, with David Zori is, uh, uh warranted. Whoa. Awesome. All right. All right. Awesome. Yeah, that would be good. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks again. Yep. I'll be talking Thank to you. you. All, All right. right. See ya. Bye.